Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for conversation with Adam Lerner, MD, and host Michael Lerner, titled Advances in Oncology, a Clinician's View. Adam Lerner, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Well, thank you. Adam, it's a special joy to talk with you. Um, first of all, because you're my brother, and we haven't done a New School conversation before. And secondly, because uh, we've both, from different angles, been working with people with cancer for a very long time. Uh, you are a professor of medicine, pathology, and laboratory medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and a medical oncologist at Boston Medical Center. You got your MD from Yale. Uh, you did an internal medicine residency um, at Boston City Hospital, and you did a fellowship in medical oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute of Harvard Medical School. And you remained there carrying on research in cellular and molecular biology of T lymphocytes, in 1996, you joined the hematology oncology section at Boston Medical Center. Your laboratory research focused on therapeutic potential of cyclic nucleotide phosphodiesterase, if I'm saying that correctly, inhibitors in lymphoid malignancies and uh, the mechanism by which a novel adopter protein modulates focal adhesion complex signaling in a number of kinds of unpronounceable cells. Um, <laughs> and your expertise includes um, uh, chronic lymphocy, uh, in includes leukemia, lymphoma, sarcoma, and skin cancer. Have I gotten any of that wrong? No, that, that summarizes it. Right. Uh, when did you start practicing cancer medicine, Adam? How long ago? Hmm. Well, as you uh, said, I um, <clears throat> went on faculty at uh, Boston Medical Center back in 96. And, you know, my training uh, in oncology started a good, you know, eight years or so before that. So I've been at it since the late 80s. Right. So my first question for you is, um, in your uh, uh, years of practicing cancer medicine, um, what are the greatest changes for the better that you have seen in your ability to treat cancer? Hmm. So yeah, when I, when I first started, uh, there were a few cancers that we had a you know, significant positive uh, impact on and treatments uh, involved varying combinations of a few uh, often plant-based um, compounds that uh, block the proliferation of cells. Um, these uh, these various drugs that damage DNA or, or uh, in other ways um, cause cancer cell death, but that are really quite um, nonspecific. 
that certainly had um, quite a lot of toxicity um, and acted on normal cells as well as cancer cells. Um, and, you know, when I look around at uh, the the medical oncologists that are in training um, at Boston Medical Center now, I'm uh, impressed and intimidated by just how many uh, different medications, classes of medications um, an oncologist now uses. The, the number is easily 10 times as many as when I was in, in training, but they've also changed you know, fundamentally in uh, their uh, mechanisms, you know, rather than being fairly nonspecific inhibitors of uh, basic cellular processes like cell division or damaging DNA, uh, you know, they're, they're now often uh, quite targeted. So inhibiting very, very specifically uh, inhibiting enzymes that are uh, uniquely important to certain uh, malignancies. So these are the so-called targeted therapies. Um, and there's just a, you know, uh, a large number of these that is growing every year. And then as you and I have discussed, uh, the other exciting new class of drugs um, are modulators of the immune system. Um, and uh, that has, uh, you know, profoundly changed uh, the, the outcome for uh, a number of cancers um, for the better, uh, you know, giving treatments that are remarkably more effective than they used to be and um, often quite well tolerated um, relative to the sorts of um, therapies that we used uh, many years ago. So that was a, a long-winded answer, but I think um, the point being that um, I think patients' experience of going through treatment, um, while still not an easy one, um, has improved over time and uh, the efficacy of therapy has also um, improved for many cancers, certainly not all of them, but for many. Mm. We'll come back to the, that line of questioning, but uh, Boston Medical Center is a famous and storied cancer center in Boston. Um, my friend and colleague, Ted Shetler, was on uh, the faculty there, as you are. Um, you treat a great many of the low-income residents of Boston. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so um, in your practice, um, when you look at the people who come for cancer treatment, uh, if you were to do a socioeconomic and ethnic distribution, how many of them would you say are low income? Let's just start there. Uh, yeah, a good, a good large number. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say um, certainly more than half. Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of the ethnicities that you see, uh, can you give me a rough sense of of who you treat? Yeah, a real wonderful polyglot um, of uh, of people from all over the world. Um, Many um, black patients, many uh, Latinx patients, but also just a um, range of folks from all over, um, many that are recent immigrants to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so makes makes uh, for a wonderful experience as a physician, just in terms of getting a sense for the full range of uh, of humanity and and uh, you know the the different lives that people live. Uh, often from out of the United States, but also certainly challenging, challenging in terms of language uh, and challenging in terms of just where people are coming from. Um, I think it's if it's often hard for the physician to really appreciate uh, where folks are, are coming from. And I, I get repeatedly uh, surprised by the, the personal histories of, of uh our immigrant patients in particular. When you you said Black and Latinx and then from all over, but if you zeroed in a bit on all over, what are the uh, populations of all over that stand out in terms of um, uh, who you see? Yeah. Um, (laughs) We have many uh, Cape Verdean patients um so uh that's a that's a common group um many haitians um groups from some parts of uh europe albanians uh um cambodians vietnamese um folks from South America, quite a number of Brazilians. Um, yeah, just a, a full range. Coming back to the the question that we started with about what you have seen that is better, could we drill down into what are the cancers where uh, you've seen the most dramatic improvements to start with? What, who, what, in other words, you, you've talked, talked broadly about the fact that some cancers are, uh, that, uh, that the treatments are much more targeted and better, um, better tolerated in many respects. But yeah. what are, where are the cancers where it's been quite remarkable? Well, I think the, uh, the winner for that uh, line of thought would be melanoma. Without question, um, I, as just by happenstance, I picked up the care of uh, patients with melanoma soon after I uh, arrived at um, at BMC in the late '90s, um, and the major forms of treatment were various pretty toxic chemotherapy regimens, but also um, uh, some immune therapies, particularly um, 
the inter, the use of interferon um, and also high dose interleukin two. Um, and we, you know, to look back on it, um, we were doing it with the best of intent. Um, but I think the balance of toxicity and, and efficacy was terrible. You know, the, these treatments were really hard on people um, and they had really fairly little effect um, on what is, when the melanoma is advanced, it is frequently a mortal illness. Um, and, and it's a very aggressive illness, uh, melanoma. So it, it was just one of the most, uh, you know, uh, profoundly challenging um, jobs you could ask for as an oncologist to, to care for people with metastatic melanoma. Um, interestingly, both melanoma and another skin cancer, cutaneous uh, squamous cell carcinoma, are different from other cancers in that they're both um, unique in, in having many uh, mutations in the genes of the cancer cells that are the result of exposure to sunlight. You know, these are both skin cancers. Um, so you're only going to get, you know, sunlight-associated uh, DNA damage um, in skin malignancies. And the interesting thing about that is that um, if you look at the total number of mutations that occur uh, in these cancers, they're significantly higher than for other forms of cancer. Um, so we talk about the somatic mutation burden. So that's the number of mutations uh, per megabase, per, per million bases of DNA. Um, and uh, they're markedly higher for both cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, which is a pretty common kind of cancer, um, and for melanoma. And the reason that's important is that um, the immune system uh, really is, is capable of seeing um, cells that are different from other cells when they uh, see a mutated protein uh, presented on the surface of the cell through these major histocompatibility antigens, which are basically proteins that stick a little piece of a protein out on the surface of the cell to be looked at by the immune system. Um, so the immune system is constantly sort of patrolling your body and looking for trouble. Uh, it's probably largely derived from looking for viruses, um, but it probably also evolved um, to look for cancer cells. Now, the cancer cells, when they're recognized by the immune system, particularly by T cells, they can be, um, you know, killed by those T cells when they when the T cells detect an abnormal protein. Um, and so probably this is going on all the time in our body, unbeknownst to us, that we're being protected against early cancer cell progenitors by our by our T cells. Um, however, with time, the as is generally true of cancer, these things evolve. There's sort of a Darwinian evolution 
uh, that's going on uh, in cancer cells. And um, what they learn to do is to um, protect themselves against this immune system monitoring by overexpressing proteins on the surface of the cancer cells that are basically like a stop sign um, for, uh, for the, the immune system. They put up a big stop sign and say, uh, you know, you're not interested in me. There's nothing going on here. Please move along. Um, and uh, I think the, the enormous breakthrough recently in uh, oncology for which there was a uh, Nobel Prize uh, awarded, um, was the recognition that um, whereas for many years, the thought was that, you know, there was not sufficient immune signal there from the cancer cells and that we really needed to provide, uh, you know, a better um, sign that the cancer cells were abnormal by giving cancer vaccines or things like that, uh, or more immune system hormones like the interferon that I mentioned. Um, instead, the, the, the real change in thinking was that what was holding back our own body's ability to respond uh, and fight developing cancers or well-established cancers was to, um, to block this negative signals that are provided by these cancer cells to, to somehow um, stop the cancer from putting up these stop signals that I mentioned, uh, cover up those stop signals. That's really turning the, the whole paradigm of what is therapeutically useful um, on its head. Uh, Instead of there not being enough of a signal, there's plenty of signal in, in many cancer cells. There are plenty of abnormal proteins being expressed on their surface. The problem is that, again, um, you need to develop drugs that allow the T cells to do what they can do um, and not to be um, blocked by this negative signaling. So the, the two molecules that um, have come into um, major play in, in, in treatment of cancer patients um, are two molecules called CTLA-4 and PD-1. The first one that was identified was uh, uh, a cell surface molecule um, called CTLA-4 that turned off the immune system. Uh, the drug companies made antibodies against CTLA-4 that covered up that negative signal. Um, and they immediately started seeing responses in, in patients with melanoma. Um, quite a bit of toxicity from that treatment, um, but really the, the first demonstration that um, this sort of approach to immune therapy was, was going to have success. Um, and, you know, this, for, for my generation of oncologists, uh, it was a profound moment to start reading um, these first uh, clinical reports because, you know, there'd always been a promise that the immune system could be harnessed to treat cancer, uh, but um, it 
it never fulfilled its apparent promise. And despite decades of, of work um, with, as I mentioned, cancer vaccines, um, you know, taking various cancer cell lines and vaccinating patients with them, um, making lots of T cells and infusing them into patients. Um, it always seemed like something that was on the brink of being uh, uh, successful, but never really um, had a big impact on, on a, um, an illness like melanoma. So CTLA-4, uh, antibodies against CTLA-4 were the first. Um, and then the big change came with targeting this drug, uh, this uh, cell surface antibody called PD-1, which is a protein that's um, expressed on T cells and PD-L1 is expressed, uh, it's, it's, its partner, its ligand is expressed on the uh, melanoma cells. So they developed antibodies against uh, PD-1 on the T cells, um, covering up this, um, this sort of stop sign that I mentioned. Uh, and this one was a combination of more, considerably more efficacious and very well, uh, generally very well tolerated um, by patients. And uh, really moved the curve on the fraction of patients, sometimes with very advanced melanoma um, that were being essentially cured by this treatment. So the, the current data on this sort of therapy to get down to you know, the details of it is that uh, during the area that I era that I first trained um, in treating melanoma, the five-year survival um, for patients with advanced melanoma was less than 5%. Um, there was a recent report that had extended follow-up for patients that were treated with both anti-CTLA-4 and uh, anti-PD-1 who had advanced, usually metastatic melanoma, the five-year survival was over 50% um, mm. at this point. So, you know, I've, uh, I feel very fortunate to um, have uh, watched that transformation of this miserable disease. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, you can imagine, it's a, it's a, a uh, profound experience for the patient and the caregiver um, to give treatment that allows a patient's immune system to wake up and start fighting this cancer and sometimes to see um, just really traumatic uh, and lasting um, responses. Mm. You know, I, I, I can't oversell this sort of approach. There's still that 50% of patients with melanoma who are not ultimately um, surviving their disease. So there's very much room for improvement, continued improvement. Um, and I also wouldn't want to say that, you know, these treatments are um, completely without uh, potential toxicity. Some patients seem to get through it with relatively minor um, toxicity. Others can have some pretty significant side effects. The type of um, side effects from this treatment are very different than from 
ordinary chemotherapy. Um, they are uh, these autoimmune um, responses. So you, you basically now made the body's immune system sort of on a hair trigger uh, and uh, it can um, uh, become confused and attack uh, normal cells in the body um, uh, instead of the cancer cells. So people get um, autoimmune thyroiditis. Um, they can get uh, autoimmune attack of other glands in the body, like the pituitary gland, leading to um, cortisol deficiency. They can get rashes. They can get uh, joint pain. Um, they can sometimes get uh, autoimmune lung involvement or um, colitis, diarrhea from colitis. Generally speaking, if you get these autoimmune side effects, um, they can be fairly promptly managed by uh, giving steroids. And generally speaking, people get through this treatment uh, safely and without too much in the way uh, of side effects. So I think the you know, efficacy to toxicity ratio is pretty terrific overall. But, you know, I, I think everyone needs to go into this kind of treatment understanding that it's, um, it's always hard to predict in an individual exactly um, what they're going to be facing. Thank you, Adam, for that. Um, let me step back to uh, the larger picture just uh, from American Cancer Society data and other sources, um, ASCO and uh, world cancer data. Uh, I read that cancer mortality rates in the US have declined by 29% since the 1990s, uh, driven by progress against lung cancer, which has an awful lot to do with people stopping smoking, right? So uh, that's a big driver. Uh, the five-year survival rate has increased 17% between 1970 and 2013. And that is attributed to earlier detection and advances in treatment. And I well imagine people stopping smoke, smoking. Um, uh, cancer death rates are falling. Um, uh, the declining rates are driven by long-term drops in death rates for lung, colorectal, breast, and prostate cancer. Um, uh, uh, then, as you said, declining death rates from melanoma reflect new treatments approved in 2011. Um, and then uh, improvements in other treatment protocols, including um, uh, uh, including uh, leukemias and lymphomas uh, are, are due again to targeted therapies. But the studies go on to say that a 2018 review showed that less than 5% of cancer patients uh, benefited uh, from genome-driven cancer therapies that target aberrations on tumor cells. Um, and, uh, and that, um, the percent of patients with cancer that benefited from genome-targeted therapy in 2006 
was 0.70 percent, and by 2018, it had increased to 4.90 percent. So basically, uh, big improvement, huge improvement, but applies to less than five percent of all cancers. Uh, would you add anything or correct anything that I've said there? Yeah, no, I I think um, that um, I, I'm quite aware of the the data about you know the promise of targeted therapy versus the reality of um, how many people end up with a an actionable target identified uh, and then you know actually find that the targeted therapy was of clinical benefit to them. And it is st still a small number. I guess that much of the care for the most common cancers, um, lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, um, you know, there have been definite incremental advances in all of, in the treatment of all of these tumors. Um, but I would say the majority of it is not necessarily these targeted treatments that um, you've just mentioned. Uh, that's the genome-driven targeting. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Lerner, MD, and host Michael Lerner. Uh, you know, without question, if you if you have a lung cancer one of the very first steps you're going to do is you want to make sure that you have all the molecular information that you can about that cancer. And in some cases, you do identify um, mutations that are treatable with targeted treatments, um, often reasonably well tolerated and can be efficacious. So I think we're all in favor of doing that testing but the bulk of the treatment of these cancers still remains, um, you know, to a large extent, uh, a variety of, of treatment regimens that are not necessarily based on, on that sort of genomic uh, testing. And I, I also, you know, I, I think any oncologist has to remain pretty humble about, um, you know, the difficulty in, in curing a lot of these common epithelial malignancies. Uh, there, there's progress, um, and people live longer than they used to, but um, it you need to remain pretty clear that the progress is not as much as we would hope for. The last thing to say about that is it's just changing every year. Um, so data from 2006 or 2010 is data different from data from 2021. I think, um, you know, there are newer and better targeted therapies coming up for many of these malignancies every year. Um, they're not usually a cure. They're, they're things that um, prolong survival, sometimes are reasonably well tolerated. So I think they're important and they'll continue to be more and more important over time, um, but we just can't oversell um, what they're accomplishing right now. 
So if I were trying to summarize what we've said so far, the targeted therapies uh, have been dramatically effective in melanoma and important in lymphomas and leukemias, but the number of people with those cancers uh, who benefit, at least from the data that I had here, which may be earlier, was around 5% of all cancers, but nonetheless, enormously important for the people who have it. But for the common epithelial cancers, uh, colon, prostate, breast, um, uh, lung, and so on, uh, progress has been, um, has been uh, less than we would have hoped. The, the, management improves, as you said, sometimes uh, you can do testing and find uh, common cancers where uh, you can do targeted therapies. It makes an awful lot of sense to do that testing. But overall, the common cancers have proven pretty recalcitrant to what we've done so far. Yeah, I mean, I'd, the only correction I'd make is just about the language we use for the these different types of treatment. So when I went on and on about melanoma, um, so that's immunotherapy. It's it's called checkpoint inhibitor oh, okay. therapy. Um, that's not a targeted therapy. That's harnessing the immune system. Um, it's okay, just you. you know, it's it's nomenclature. the The word targeted therapy typically refers to um, the use of uh, drugs that are against a particular enzyme, um, inhibit a, a particular enzyme that is uniquely important, uh, maybe not uniquely, but that is important in, in subsets of, of cancers, not all cancers. Um, so often, you know, a particular cancer will have frequent mutations in, in one enzyme um, and, you know, the drug companies develop a good inhibitor of that enzyme and, and that leads to clinical responses. Um, and that's the sort of thing that one looks for when one does next generation sequencing of uh, the DNA of the tumor and look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of genes to see which of those commonly mutated genes in cancer um, is, a, is, is mutated in that particular individual's cancer and, and therefore one could use that particular targeted treatment. Um, but, you know, the other thing to say about the common malignancy is, you know, I, I said there's incremental um, improvement in outcomes. And, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's quite uh, important, like both breast cancer and prostate cancer are hormonally sensitive um, in many cases, but not all cases. Um, so I don't know what you want to call it. It's, it's, it's hormonal therapy. And there's been, again, important incremental improvement in uh, the treatment for these, uh, for these tumors over the last decades. Um, and people are living longer than they used to. Um, they're also, you know, the other big class of, uh, of therapeutics in cancer are just generally antibody therapies, um, frequently against 
proteins that are growth factor receptors on these epithelial malignancies. So in, uh, um, in breast cancer and other epithelial malignancies, th those sort of antibody therapies have been an important incremental advance. Uh, yeah, I could go on and on. I, I think uh, the fact is we see patients that with, you know, a range of these different therapeutics in a skilled oncologist's hands are living certainly longer than was the case when I first started. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's and, so important. Yeah. Um, I saw a study recently that really caught my eye, and I, I don't have the citation here. Uh, you might have seen it, that for many women over 70 with breast cancer, that uh, I don't know quite how to describe it, but it was basically that, uh, that non-treatment with aggressive therapies uh, was as effective as treatment with the aggressive therapies. Now, I don't know. I assume that meant that the, that the, uh, that the women who were untreated with aggressive therapies were getting hormonal therapies, but I don't know that. Do you, do you happen to know that study or not? It's, I don't. Yeah, okay. I don't. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's in line with, or let me ask you it as a question. Um, if you see a woman over 70 with breast cancer, um, I'm sure it depends on the specifics, but is hormonal management as opposed to chemo surgery and radiation something that comes to mind? Yeah, as you said, it's it's just completely dependent on the specifics yeah. of that breast cancer. I'd so, have to so study. You know, there are um, the the estrogen and progesterone receptor positive um, uh, cancers uh, are hormonally responsive, and frequently, you know, one might it, again. It would also depend on just the the uh, clinical stage of the breast cancer. So I think it's a little hard to generalize. I think the overall point you're making that sometimes more is not better, particularly in the elderly, is absolutely, you know, accepted um, by the oncologic community. There's, as I think you know, there's a whole field now of geriatric oncology, um, which is focusing on, you know, amongst uh, different people of different chronologic age and physiologic age, uh, how do you make the choices of uh, whether to treat? Um, and if so, with how much? And, and it's getting to the point where, you know, we not only talk about, you know, are you going to give 100% of the dose you might give a younger person, 50% or 75%, they're really uh, certainly in hematologic malignancies. A lot of discussion about how you go about choosing the right intensity of therapy, mm -hmm. um, and it very much depends on the particular cancer. In addition to all the specifics about the person in front of you, in terms of their physiologic reserve, not just how 
chronologically old they are, but um, your best estimate as to their their functional status and their ability to tolerate different kinds of treatment. There are some malignancies for which, you know, cure is, is under normal circumstances, the, you know, the goal. And so cutting way back on treatment simply because of somebody's chronologic age might not be the right choice. Um, on the other hand, we've learned that I, I'll take lymphoma as an example. You take a, a curable lymphoma like diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Um, you know, it used to be that we sort of gave the same treatment to everybody regardless of age. Um, and now we know that um, you can cut the doses essentially in half um, for patients over the age of 80, uh, particularly if, you know, if they're relatively frail and have really good outcomes with that reduced intensity um, that they can, they can tolerate the treatment uh, and they seem to get lasting benefit from it. So, yeah, there's a lot of interest in, in what, what's the right amount for people of different age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, that a lot of our interest focuses on uh, integrative therapies. I mean, we are um, tremendous believers in the skillful use of conventional therapies, as you know, for, uh, in our work. Um, and I regard... Um, the ASCO-sponsored website, cancer.net, as perhaps um, one of the best resources for patients in terms of being constantly updated. Um, so let me just start with that question. When, when you have patients who want to learn about their cancer, uh, what website do you refer them to? Um, uh, yeah, to be completely honest, I, um, I don't do a lot of that and it may have something to do with the patient population that yeah. I'm dealing with, um, for whom English is often not their first right. language. Um, and many of whom are not, uh, yeah, not, not using the internet a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my practice a little bit unusual in that respect. And um, I'm aware that there are multiple um, uh, excellent sources of information out on the on the web, including, I think, uh, Commonweal offers uh, quite a bit. But um, I, I, I think it's a great idea to refer people to the right uh, source and um, again, I think it's just something special about my practice. Yeah. Uh, let me go to prostate cancer for a moment. As you know, my friend and colleague, Dean Ornish, has done a lot of work on uh, integrative therapies to reverse coronary artery disease and diet, exercise, stress reduction, and social support. And he then applied that, among other things, to prostate cancer. And in his studies, uh, found that uh, early-stage prostate cancer patients uh, with a relatively low Gleason index uh, that uh, he saw in his controlled studies um, uh, outcomes that were at least as good as uh, more aggressive treatment. Um, And um, 
Then there's been kind of a debate in the medical literature more broadly as I've read it about whether wait and watch with prostate cancer, uh, leaving aside integrative therapies to improve your health while you do wait and watch, um, whether wait and watch is actually uh, a legitimate uh, option. Uh, do you follow that field enough to have a view on it? Um, you know, I'm not a GU oncologist. Prostate cancer is not my uh, usual, um, the, the thing that I'm, I'm generally seeing people for or giving advice. So I'd, I'd have to be fairly careful about it. I do, in, I think I, my own personal feeling about it is that um, I, I think the whole field has um, moved a bit uh, towards greater adoption of watch and wait. Um, prostate cancer is a tough malignancy in that many of the earliest tumors um, that are low grade um, may never be of clinical significance to that patient. Um, if you were to go out and biopsy everybody, the, every man over the age of 70, over the age of 80, over the age of 90, you're going to see um, enormous numbers of uh, prostate cancers that most likely will would not be responsible for the death of that patient um, if left alone. Um, on the other hand, there are prostate cancers that are, you know, quite aggressive and do shorten people's lives. Um, they are often uh, tumors that might progress, have already progressed by the time the patient is uh, diagnosed. And so the question is, how many patients do we hit that sweet spot where we can identify somebody who's going to go on to be to have disease that will be clinically important in the years ahead of them, and that by aggressive local therapy with surgery and radiation, you can arrest that process. What is the fraction of such patients um, where you've you've found just that group where it was an important cancer that would affect that person's life, but it hasn't spread yet. And I, you know, I think the the big randomized trials would suggest that that's probably a pretty small percentage of the total population of people with prostate cancer. So it makes it very hard for us to have a really major impact on survival with aggressive surgery and, and radiation. But again, it, as you said, it's a controversial topic. And uh, I think um, it isn't, you know, completely my, uh, my area. So um, I wouldn't say anything definitive about it. I certainly think that for some people who have apparently localized disease with a higher Gleason score, that it's reasonable to get surgery and radiation. Um, 
Is no. the Gleason index, this is ignorance, but is it a good marker of the aggressiveness of prostate cancer or are there better markers? So it's a, you know, it's, it's essentially what the pathologist grades um, the cancer as in terms of um, uh, various malignant features. Um, and it is, uh, I believe, you know, critically important to, to prognosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what you're asking is, you know, are there, um, are there, there are a lot of questions wrapped up in that question, you know, how reproducible is it? Mm-hmm. If you take the same prostate biopsy and you show it to 20 pathologists, how, how reproducible will the Gleason score be? Um, and how much, as you say, what, what additional, um, biomarkers might there be that would uh, help in a decision? To my knowledge, the Gleason score remains, you know, the most important single factor. Speaking, we were just speaking of uh, uh, reading pathology reports. Um, in my understanding, uh, which has been affirmed by leading people in the cancer community that I know, that the reading of pathology reports is um, a critical link in the chain, that if if the pathology report is read differently, you might get a different treatment in some cases. Uh, And that um, there are some centers where um, when they when they go over it, that the uh, error rate in pathology reports is much higher than at other centers. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, from my own personal experience, I've you know run across cases where diagnoses have changed with review. Uh, so I I do think that particularly for some subtypes of cancer. Um, that are challenging for the pathologist um, that it's reasonable to get uh, other sets of eyes on it and get um, other opinions. Whether the other opinions are always better than the first opinion, I mean, having watched this process a few times, I think uh, it's not always clear that the consultant, you know, gives a better answer than the original diagnosis. Um, Depends, obviously, a lot on um, which institution you're at and and also, you know, the the particulars of uh, the malignant process that you're looking at. Um, Yeah, uh, I, I think that many pathologists are actually quite comfortable with sending out um, their more challenging cases for review elsewhere. Um, And it's just the right thing to do. Um, So uh, it's certainly something for a patient to be aware of that, you know, in, in, in certain instances, it may be good to request that your pathology be reviewed by um, another another uh, institution, for instance. And are there specific malignancies 
let's just take breast cancer, for example. And again, you are so much more expert in all this than I am by light years. But uh, it seems to me that I may have read that in breast cancer, uh, you can get different readings from different biopsies of the same breast cancer. Is that accurate or not? Hmm. I'm sure that's true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you may get, um, you can get variation from one part of a tumor to another. Yeah. So how frequently that makes sense to do so a different So if that's process? the case. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So if one were trying to optimize care, obviously optimizing care is a luxury anywhere. But if one's trying to optimize care, what are the malignancies where the differences in reading, whether from one pathologist to another or one biopsy to another, are sufficiently important because of the differences in treatment and outcome that one would be more inclined to get another set of eyes on it? Yeah, so there are two different questions here. One was about two sets of eyes. One was about two sets of biopsies. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's hard to paint with too broad a brush. Uh, I do think hematologic malignancies, lymphomas, um, are often challenging. Uh, there are a lot of different diagnoses within the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma category. Uh, and they have different treatment paradigms. Um, furthermore, um, so, so that's to say that in some instances, it, it really, uh, for challenging cases, it's, it's quite appropriate to get uh, um, a second set of eyes. And, and as I've mentioned frequently, the pathologists will be the ones that will do it even before it's requested. Um, but uh, in terms of getting other biopsies, yeah, that, that comes up with, you know, it's not super frequent, but um, there are malignancies that are uh, relatively low grade, meaning they don't proliferate very quickly. Um, they don't, they, they, their natural history spreads out over years. Um, they may not need immediate treatment um, that can undergo molecular evolution and transformation to higher grade malignancies. Um, and that would be clinically very important because those would be treated differently. And um, so if you do a biopsy and because you maybe uh, didn't use every resource at hand to identify um, the highest grade area of someone's malignancy, you may uh, um, essentially not appreciate that um, the patient has a, a more aggressive and more high-grade malignancy than was apparent from the biopsy that was done. So we do use some um, radiologic imaging uh, techniques to try to guide what's the best site for biopsy. Um, particularly in lymphomas, there are these PET scans that I think you're familiar with that um, are like a regular CAT scan, but then in addition, they um, 
use the fact that cancers take up glucose um, and that the more aggressive and proliferative cancers take up more glucose. Um, so you can actually guide the site of the biopsy um, by choosing to, to look at areas that have the highest glucose uptake so that if you had somebody who had an underlying indolent, slow-growing lymphoma, but that had transformed at one site, then maybe being guided by PET would allow you to, to see a higher grade. You know, how frequently it actually works out that that's tremendously successful, I don't, I don't think in every case that um, you, you definitely would change your diagnosis by PET-guided biopsies, but it is something that people do and, and think about. Hmm. Let me ask you about another subject, which is um, how, to what degree, uh, again, this is an ignorance, but to what degree standard of care, in quotes, guides an oncologist's decisions and whether, uh, for example, an experienced oncologist who may be seeing better results uh, and reading the literature according to his or her lights uh, might want to deviate from a standard of care. And I guess, I mean, obviously we live in a very litigious society and also institutions have to guarantee quality standard of care. I'm just asking, is there a tension between uh, an oncologist's knowledge and intuition about what best suits a specific patient and whether there's any pressure to adhere to standards of care? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, so I think you know that you can go to the NCCN and download these uh, flow diagrams for the management of most cancers. NCCN uh, being what? Uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so you can look up, you know, uh, right, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of various types and, and look at what is considered the standard of care. Um, you're right, there is a tension um, in the, the field of uh, treatment for these uh, cancers does evolve pretty quickly, and there can be a, uh, a gap between um, the latest hot, you know, treatment that's just been published, um, maybe in somewhat preliminary form, but, you know, looks really encouraging and uses maybe medications that are already familiar and FDA approved um, for, for another indication, where the oncologist may choose to treat with something that they've seen more preliminary data, you know, that looks really promising, or maybe they've had the experience already themselves that something's working. Um, and utilize that rather than the precise step in NCCN. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Lerner, MD, and host Michael Lerner. I think that's got to be a minority of um, of such uh, cases. I think you know it also depends again entirely on the cancer type. There are going to be um, cancers for which, generally speaking, 
lots of things don't work particularly well and you're you're trying to give palliative treatment to extend someone's life and to ameliorate symptoms and you have many different options to choose from and they're not really all listed in NCCN um, and what happens is that uh, you know the practitioner will either from their own experience or they'll call up their buddy at another institution that um, sees a large volume of these unusual cancers and try to get their best advice about, you know, what they've seen and what works. And, you know, I think that ends up actually being a, a pretty significant portion of overall cancer care is, is not captured by, as you put it, the sort of standard of care um, treatment. Um, yes. Diagrams. Um, because, uh, yeah, often plans A, B, and C don't work, but the patient is still doing okay. And you're just trying to find something that, you know, will help. Mm. Um, and, and you're going, uh, more on, you know, modest phase two data or, or things like that, rather than really well-established, um, big phase three trials, a lot of cancer, the, this, the, the numbers of patients for some of the less common cancers are small enough that there isn't wonderful phase three data for every treatment choice. Um, so there's quite a bit of that that I think that goes on. This goes back to a subject we talked about earlier um, related to wait and watch or, or less, uh, you know, less aggressive treatments with the elderly. Um, but it has to do with uh, the emergent, the, the growth of, of palliative care as a specialty. Um, I've seen some studies of some cancers where uh, patients on palliative care actually lived longer than patients on active treatment. Yep, that's um, well established. That's yeah. well established. Okay. So what, and, and I also hear some palliative care enthusiasts say that, uh, that it's sometimes that palliative care can be begun as early as one wants. It doesn't have to be end of life because it's quality of life issues. Um, so the question for you is, um, as you have practiced over the years, has palliative care been an area of growth? Uh, and, uh, how does it intersect with your practice and, and the practice of cancer medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely grown without question. Um, I think... It's got to depend on the particular oncologist. I mean, you could argue that a good oncologist should know a good bit about palliative care themselves. Um, but uh, I lean on my palliative care specialists at the hospital quite a bit. Mm -hmm. There's certainly things that they do better than I do about, you know, sophisticated pain control and, and things like that, where I will um, turn to them for help. Um, and then I agree with what you just said, which is that I, it's not an either or um, uh, issue. I think that um, 
having someone whose focus is on quality of life and ameliorating symptoms be seeing a patient and doing everything they can to accomplish those goals um, doesn't mean that there can't be somebody who's wearing a different hat, which is focusing primarily on, uh, you know, keeping this malignancy from growing and uh, trying to find some kind of regimen that will uh, shrink it, et cetera. Um, those two jobs can be um, managed by one person or one team, uh, and I think they frequently are, but uh, under ideal circumstances, I think it's great to have both practitioners involved in the care of the patient um, at the same time. Yeah. I want to ask you about the cost of uh, standard care. Um, uh, the data I've seen is that 42% of patients deplete their life savings. Uh, obviously, these $92,000 within two years of diagnosis. And also that in 2015, research showed that in the previous decade, the average monthly cost of cancer treatment more than doubled to $10,000. Um, obviously, you treat a, a largely a very low-income community. So presumably they are on, uh, or many of them are on um, uh, public insurance of one kind or another. But what is your observation over the course of your career on the cost of cancer therapy? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, some people have pointed out that for many patients, uh, the cancer is not the biggest problem in their life. Right. Um, there are a lot of other things going on um, that uh, are actually of more immediate consequence to them. Do they have a, a house over their head? And do they, um, what's going on with their family um, and their loved ones? Um, and that happens a lot in our practice that um, we have to try to be sensitive to all the other things that are going on um, in a patient's life besides the cancer and how they make choices, you know, as they go along about which is more important. Um, and in terms of financial impact of having a cancer diagnosis, you know, it may not be out of pocket costs for the medications, although I think that's maybe what you're driving at. And, and certainly that can be a big issue. Um, to some extent, that's um, uh, in a safety net hospital. We have some resources that you know help help in that. Um, we can get medications somewhat less expensively for our patients, um, but it remains a big issue. And I think that the other big issues um, that are financial um, are not about the cost of the medication, but about not being able to work. Um, about having other family members that have to take time off of work in order to care for someone who's going through cancer treatment. Um, you know, there are just many, many things that I think can impact one's financial health mm -hmm. other than out-of-pocket um, costs, even though the out-of-pocket costs can be quite important. Um, yeah, so the cost of uh, cancer care has grown extraordinarily it's a 
difficult topic because I think none of us feel comfortable trying to put a dollar amount on, you know, what uh, someone's, uh, you know, quality of life is worth, what their survival is worth, and what their sense of hope is worth. You know, if you, you know, you may have a medication that's not certain to work, um, that may be very expensive, but might work. And it's awfully painful if, uh, if that approach is held up for financial reasons. Um, so the end result is that given the way the United States healthcare system works, um, the costs of care in the United States are extraordinary and cancer makes up a pretty big piece of that. It's certainly not the only issue, but it's an important one. And as you've been pointing out with some of your public health statistics that I think are so important to keep turning back to, um, you know, the, the amount of increased survival we get per uh, money spent is, is not impressive. You know, we, we spend tremendous amounts of money and, and we don't necessarily push the curve for uh, survival anywhere near as much as we would like. However, the other side of the coin is that, you know, we have a, um, a pharmaceutical industry in the United States that periodically you just have to, you know, at least I personally just am dumbfounded by the amount of uh, skill and cleverness with which um, these companies come up with drugs that are really important advances for the patients that have these illnesses. They may not be, you know, the most common lung cancer or colon cancer cases, um, but for the patients that have these illnesses, you know, these, these new drugs are remarkable. Are they worth, you know, $100,000, $300,000 a year? Uh, because the, the numbers can start to be extraordinary. No, I wish we had a system that um, that somehow managed to uh, to make a more a sensible financial model for for uh, costs of cancer care. Um, that's going to be very difficult to accomplish. Um, I think one other issue that um, we don't talk about a lot is just how variable. Um, what can be offered to patients is around the country. You know, if you get cancer in one state or one city versus another state, you know, in a rural area versus an urban area, and what your insurance options are, will have a big impact on whether you have access to some of these new medications that can really make a big difference for you. Um, and, and this is just getting to be a bigger and bigger topic every year. Uh, we're now starting to use with some frequency this um, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. I think you've heard about that. These are these genetically engineered um, autologous T-cells. So you take the patient's own T-cells, you uh, 
you know, you you infect them with a virus that results in the expression of a a chimeric um, artificial receptor on their surface that is specific for the cancer. And these can be, you know, profoundly effective in patients that have no other option for treatment, but at fantastic cost. Um, It's now been approved by uh, Medicare. So it's actually, you know, an approved treatment, but it's just one more example of how the cost curve keeps moving up and up and up. Um, So I, I have no solution for this, but I do think um, the overall system is pretty broken um, in the United States as a whole. It's it's uh, it's, yeah, it's not, such a, it's not such, a sustainable system for right. sure. It's such a quandary because if you look at COVID, what is the country that came up with the better vaccines in short period of time compared to Europe or anywhere else? It was the United States, right? And uh, so. You know, I mean, here is a situation where, you know, the capacity to bring those vaccines online that fast. I mean, obviously, there have been hiccups and problems and this, that and the other. But nonetheless, the vaccines are an extraordinary accomplishment compared to how long it usually takes to get a vaccine. Yeah. So it, it was unbelievable. So I completely agree with you that it's a deep quandary. I mean, the, the countries that have, you know, publicly sponsored Healthcare systems are not the countries that came up with these vaccines for the most part. So it, it really is a question. But along those lines, uh, a subject we've occasionally discussed also, um, and let me ask the question based on my ignorance again. Um, I understand that for many cancers, there are generic drugs that have been around for a long time um, that sometimes have outcomes as good as uh, as uh, the new drugs that are coming on. And yet, because of the way the uh, financial incentives work, uh, you can have shortages of the generic drugs, which are less expensive, because uh, the financial incentives push the industry and other players to use the new ones. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I... I think uh, it is a problem, an important one. I don't think I would overstate it. I, I think, generally speaking, we have access to the older off-patent medications. Um, but it's periodically a problem to get these drugs. Um, and when it is, it does really make you want to bang your head against the wall because, as you said, they're often logs, you know, uh, on the, you know, tenfold or a hundredfold less expensive than newer medications. And they have an established track record. Um, and we know how to use them. And we've been using them for years. And sometimes, absolutely, because of market forces, uh, there's a national shortage of some of these things. So without question, how much money a company makes off of these drugs has an impact on <laughs> how much of it's around to be to be sold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there have been efforts to try to come up with a new financial model to support 
the the makers of generics um, so that it's sustainable over time. Um, uh, it hasn't been solved uh, yet, and it's true for actually, I think, many, not just drugs. There are other things uh, within overall medical care that are essentially low-cost things that there's just not a big enough profit margin for them. Um, and we do run into these shortages. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, I think that the intersection between capitalism and medicine is a messy one. And, uh, and trying to, you know, organize a system that is fair to all parties involved um, is difficult. And I, I think it's, you know, it's easy to uh, berate the pharmaceutical industry. And I think sometimes it's definitely deserved, but as you just said, sometimes, you know, we have to recognize their worth in this whole process. And, um, frequently the, the products that are being made by, um, these pharmaceutical firms are extraordinary and really having a big impact on people's lives. Um, so how, how exactly to value that, uh, come up with a system that is fair for the consumer and for the firms that are making this. Yeah, it's tough, and they haven't haven't figured it out yet. It's also just true of American culture as a whole. I mean, we are a very entrepreneurial culture that doesn't put a high value on safety nets. And so many European countries and elsewhere have much stronger safety nets, but are nowhere near as entrepreneurial, not only in medicine, but just across the whole range of invent inventiveness. So it creates a very dynamic society that creates all kinds of new and promising things, but the uh, benefits are less equitably distributed than in, in other countries. Right. I want to ask you about bias in research. Um, uh, I've been looking at this question and, and there seem to be a set of different sources of bias. Uh, sponsorship bias, the tendency of studies to show outcomes favorable to the sponsors, uh, reviewer bias, um, uh, uh, publication bias, uh, uh, you know, uh, researchers and their financial sponsors may be less likely to publish a study that shows no effect, uh, and so on. Uh, reporting bias, uh, studies uh, that uh, show uh, you know, an effect of something that is going to uh, be very profitable may be, um, may be more uh, touted uh, in both uh, in the public literature and, and in medical sources and so forth. Um, there was a 2019 uh, article in uh, JAMA Oncology that found that 16% of anti-cancer drug approvals in the U.S., included a comparison group not sufficiently well-designed to make sound conclusions about the superiority of the experimental treatment uh, uh, correct. And um, so my question to you is, um, when you as a clinician and scientist uh, read the literature, to what degree uh, do you have a sense that what you're reading uh, is actually reflective of 
where a more comprehensive view of the science would take you and to what degree uh, are, does it introduce a certain uh, agnosticism? Hmm. Well, I think it's a good segue from the last uh, subject we were talking about in the sense that, again, with you know the, the intersection of business and medicine is a messy one. Um, the many of the trials that are being um, carried out, the big randomized trials, are underwritten and run essentially by the companies that are um, developing a new drug and that are going to make a large profit if their drug is ultimately found to be superior to the comparator. Um, and 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 become FDA approved. So the comment you made about you know what is the comparator and is it the appropriate comparator is I think something that many oncologists pick up on all the time. You know what is a reasonable uh, if if you've got a you know new drug X and you're comparing it against current standard of care for the illness in question you know, what are you going to pick as that uh, standard of care? And often, uh, you know, there's some debate as to what might be that standard of care. Um, and it often feels as if the comparator that's being chosen is not the first one that any of us would choose. Um, it's not the most effective. It's not the, the drug that you know, or the regimen that we would feel would be the one we would currently go to for that particular situation. It might be in, you know, a somewhat less, a somewhat older regimen or a somewhat less aggressive regimen, but maybe one that is still, as I mentioned, within the NCCN guidelines or um, out there as a possibility. So the end result is that, you know, you're choosing a What's the metaphor? A paper tiger? Or you 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 um, you choose something that's pretty easy to knock down, and then you knock it down with your randomized trial, and uh, your drug is accepted. So I think that's not uncommon. And more generally speaking, I think, uh, particularly as you get older in this business, um, you do have a a somewhat jaundiced view of a lot of the newest therapies that um, things often look to be, uh, you know, uh, look in these trials to be better than they actually in the long term will prove to be. Um, it seems as if a lot of new regimens have, you know, marginal improved, improved efficacy and pretty substantial toxicity. So, um, as an example, some of the you know newest drugs in in treatment of um, myeloma, there's some substantial toxicity, and then the increments in in outcome are modest. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know I think we we generally want to encourage uh, clinical investigators and companies to be as creative and inventive about um, the introduction of 
entirely new classes of drugs. Um, and as a whole, I think the enterprise of, of clinical studies in oncology is still, uh, you know, it, I, I don't feel it's broken. I think it's, uh, um, it's, it's good that it's held to the standards that it is. I mean, I think trying to get FDA approval for a new oncology drug is still, it's still a pretty high bar. You know, you have to, you have to prove that your drug is efficacious and, um, uh, you know, going to add value to, to the range of options that are available uh, for the care of that illness. Um, so I, I guess it just depends on what you want to, focus on. Um, is there bias in, uh, in clinical trials? Yeah, I think all of us recognize that there is, you know, a, a strong commercial drive that is underwriting a lot of the, the clinical trials that are out there today. So you have to view, read what you're reading with that in the back of your mind. Um, but where would we be without, you know, um, these uh, companies making these new medications with profit in mind? We would not have this whole, you know, generation of, of new therapies out, many of which are extraordinary. Um, so I, Within our own academic circle, um, it's actually a, a topic that, you know, we often talk with the um, hematology oncology fellows that are in training that um, it, it's important to, to look at trials with a little bit of uh, a jaundiced eye uh, and, and keep in mind that things are being put in the most positive light possible uh, when those articles are written. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Lerner, MD, and host Michael Lerner. Let me go from there, which is clearly about the pharmaceutical industry and its and its underwriting of research. They and others have also managed to structure uh, the the whole system so that there are financial conflicts for oncologists and institutions built into the system. So for example, uh, in Medicare reimbursement, uh, drugs that are administered by infusion and injection in physician offices and outpatient departments are covered by Medicare B. Uh, and in the US, Medicare reimburses cost on the basis of average sales plus 6%. This means the provider will be paid more for prescribing a more costly medication. Uh, that's from um, Medscape 2018. Beyond the reimbursement incentive, um, uh, a study um, in 2018 uh, uh, showed that some oncologists may be more likely to prescribe certain cancer medicines when they receive payments from the companies making uh, these drugs. And um, a review of prescription practices and two types of cancer for which several treatment options are available uh, compared to physicians who didn't receive any treatments 
uh, to those who did, and they were 84% more likely to prescribe uh, a treatment for renal cancer medication and 31% more likely for a medication for chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, so again, I don't see any blame in these things, but what I'm doing here is to go through the research that we've pulled together and just check it against your lengthy experience in this work. Uh, do those kinds of conflicts rise to the level of awareness or concern? Yeah, I mean, I think my practice is very atypical for uh, reflecting the practice of oncology in the United States as a whole. I'm in my ivory tower, um, and uh, I'm, I'm largely uh, um, sort of, how should I put it? I'm protected against uh, right. against all of this. Um, you know, we are salaried physicians that aren't yeah. particularly um, going to profit from any dis decisions we make along the way about what we prescribe. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't even think about it, um, which is, you know, a very uh, privileged way to practice. Mm -hmm. um, I am aware that across the country, you know, there are places where medicine in general is kind of like the Wild West uh, and that um, the profit motive is uh, evident at all aspects of the patient's care. And I think it's, um, you know, very important for patients to be aware about these things and um, to think through about the options that are being recommended to them. But of course, in many cases, that's hard for them, you know. Uh, so um, it might also be, you know, it, from a practical standpoint, given what the question that you're raising, I think it's an argument for occasional second opinions about, you know, uh, if you're, if you come to a medical center and, and somebody recommends treatment X and you don't know too much about it, it seems like there are several options. Um, you might want to go get a second opinion, uh, on the off chance that the, what's being offered to you is being offered for some other motive. Mm -hmm. Another big trend in cancer medicine that doesn't apply to you, but I'm curious what you think the impact did, is the disappearance of private oncology practices. 2015 ASCO report noted declining interest among oncologists in private or solo practice careers. And since 2008, in a 2020 report, 1,700 private oncology practices had closed or been acquired by hospitals, merged, or reported financial struggles. Um, and a lot of these um, have been bought up by um, just a very small number of integrated practices or integrative companies that both distribute drugs and, you know, uh, and own these practices. Uh, is this something that you have tracked or been aware of? And do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing or uh, somewhere in between? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, some of the, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's quite complicated. I think um, there, it's just a reality of the marketplace that um, in many areas um, there's, concentration of medical care in general. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, it's it's just the way capitalism works that you get these more uh, efficient processes um, with many physicians working for a single uh, provider. Um, I think in rural areas of uh, the United States where so many people live, um, this could be uh, a destructive process. I'm, I'm well aware that many community hospitals are shutting down, um, that overall um, surviving in this marketplace can be really challenging for uh as you said, either solo practitioners or even small physician groups. Um, there is no economy of scale there. Um, and for lots of different reasons, I think that would be uh, a hard thing to sustain. However, you know, in certain communities, that's what was available. And the loss of that is a big negative impact on that community to not uh, have a local oncologist that you could go to to get local care, but to have to travel significant distances in order to get it. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, problematic. And again, you know, I think the decisions are revolving around, you know, when people can meet their bottom line. Um, and as I said, you know, I, I think, uh, Designing a perfect medical care system for the country as it currently exists, where people live, um, is a different question than what uh, works financially for the providers of medical care around the country. Um, they're clearly going to lose money in certain markets and um, particularly rural areas. Uh, how do we fix that? I, I don't know how you fix that. Um, Sure, someone's thought about it more than I. Hmm. Uh, as we begin to move toward a close, um, as you know, we at Commonweal have been involved for over 34 years doing something like 220 week-long retreats for cancer patients. And now we continue to do those online. And we have a Healing Circles Global uh, community that is reaching out around the world, doing healing circles work with cancer and other patients. We also have a, a website called Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies, which you've been kind enough to advise us on, uh, that um, is doing uh, peer-reviewed summaries of about 100 of the uh, complementary uh, therapies, supplements, herbals, and so on as well as repurposed drugs um, and all the rest. Um, uh, we also collaborate with ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, uh, and with uh, the Society for Integrative Oncology, which is the professional group. I should correct that. We collaborate with the Society for Integrative Oncology, which in turn collaborates with the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Uh, on uh, protocols for integrative treatment of different cancers. And, uh, and many of the people in the Society for Integrative Oncology, the leadership really is drawn from the leadership of major cancer centers across the country. So that's the kind of parenthesis. So the question I wanna ask you, you've, you've followed our work, you're aware of it. 
there's this whole body of work on integrative oncology. Um, and the major cancer centers have responded, fortunately to a degree, uh, since I published my book, Choices in Healing, over 20 years ago, when all of the integrative stuff was regarded as quackery. But now you have integrative uh, treatment centers at many, if not most, of the major cancer centers. But those integrative treatment centers tend to be what I sometimes call integrative treatment light, like light beer, in that they will talk about diet, stress, stress reduction, exercise, social support, imagery, visualization, meditation. In some instances, they will go Memorial Sloan Kettering as far as specializing in um, a traditional Chinese medicine where there's really strong evidentiary basis. But on the whole, it has remained, even though there's been this rapprochement from quackery to integration at major centers, with integrative therapy light. Nonetheless, a lot of quite evidence-based and at least evidence-informed uh, therapies remain really outside of uh, conventional cancer medicine. And I know that's also driven by the profit motive and institutional things and sociology of knowledge, but to what degree do you ever even think about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I, I live in my own world, uh, which is a long way from yours. Yeah. Um, I think about those things when I hear, you know, so many of my patients who in their own way are, you know, seeking and using alternative forms of therapy and they tell me about it and they ask me how I feel about it. Um, I'm generally supportive. Um, I think we have our own uh, uh, approach to integrative uh, therapy at Boston Medical Center with a, you know, pretty wide variety of things that are offered to our cancer patients that I think are sensitive to where they're coming from and, and supportive to them from where they're coming from. Um, every hospital's patient population will be different in that way. Um, so I would say that, you know, we, offer, I, I, we actually have an acupuncturist on, on staff in our clinic as, as one example. We do yoga, all those sort of things, but they might be what you refer to as light. Um, you know, I would, I would say that um, as an individual, I'm supportive of it. I think for a lot of busy practices that are just even trying to get the the more basic support services available to their patients, be it regular social work, palliative care, the other things we've talked about, um, that it's a stretch to um, develop their own integrative um, uh, cancer program. I think more likely it would be something where 
we would have to find something in the area that uh, that was available and that we could refer people to and let them know about. That would that would seem probably a, a better way to do it. Um, yeah, I'm not actually aware within the Boston area of what those other um, sort of programs would be. I wouldn't be surprised if they're around. Um, but yeah, it's not not something that over my long career that I've um, I've done. I haven't actually referred people. I've I've mentioned Commonweal a bunch of times, and I've told people about your uh, your um, your website. Um, but beyond that, uh, I don't know of actual integrative cancer programs in the Boston area, and I should. So that probably says something about my allopathic background. Well, you're also a little bit busy. Speaking yeah. of which, about how many patients do you see on an average day of in the clinic? Yeah, um, I'd say personally, I'm seeing you know 20, 22 patients. Um, more of my patients are passing through because I work with a team of providers. So if something comes up with the other um, patients of mine that are coming through clinic that's unexpected, then there are more of them around probably in the range of 30 plus uh, uh, a day. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people. Yeah. And you're, um, I understand that your uh, Boston Medical Center prides itself on the diversity of its staff and its uh, fellows and uh, its training programs and so forth. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, Coming toward the end, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about or anything that you want to add to what you said that um, that uh, you just would like to be part of this wonderful record of a conversation between two brothers who've done parallel work for 30-some years in this? Yeah, period? yeah. Well, I think the two of us probably have shared the fact that, you know, facing a cancer diagnosis um, often brings out um, the strengths of people. Um, you know, they they call on reserves that they might not have known were there. And I think they learn things about themselves and their family that, um, you know, are somehow crystallized by the experience of, of having cancer. And I suspect both of us appreciate uh, getting a chance to watch people as they struggle with this often miserable illness. Um, It's terrible, but it's also um, periodically quite wonderful to, uh, uh, you know, to, to get to know people during this pretty profound stretch of their lives. And I think, what I always uh, am impressed by is just how, in general, most people um, really are, can, can approach uh, their own mortality and um, the misery of the particular illness in ways that just really impress me. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, we come at it from very different, uh, yeah, we're, I think I'm at the trunk and you're at the tail or I'm at the tail and you're at the trunk. Uh, we're, we're seeing this, uh, this illness from different perspectives, but I think in terms of our interactions with people, 
we probably share uh, quite a bit of, um, you know, it's, it is a, uh, it can be hard, but it's also quite a uh, privilege to have a job like this. I'm looking at, you know, I like this conversation that we just had because I am towards the end of my career. Um, and I, it's given me a moment to, to pause and, and look back uh, at what it's been like. And uh, I'm glad I, I'm glad I chose this career. When you, when you think about what it is in you that has enabled you to keep going in a very difficult profession all these years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is the source of your impulse to do this? Yeah. Well, it's it's damn interesting. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it keeps changing. And, you know, I think to practice within an academic setting is particularly rewarding. I'm surrounded by colleagues, you know, that are wonderful and also, um, you know, fellows and residents that are remarkable. And so there's that whole aspect of it, just constant um, interaction and chatter at both a personal and an intellectual level about what we're encountering. Um, and then the other aspect of what I just talked about, you know, to, to work in a hospital like Boston Medical Center is incredible because um, you just never know who you're going to encounter next. Um, they're coming from places that are so different than my own life story. Uh, you know, I, I was essentially born with a silver spoon in my mouth and I recognize that I've been so fortunate in how our parents raised us and the education we got. Um, and I spend my lives with people that have very different life experiences, but I'm still able to connect with them. Um, and I hope offer them something, um, and the practice of uh, cancer medicine is incredibly interesting. You know, it's it's uh, all of internal medicine with all the um, challenges of, you know, many different illnesses that patients have when they also have cancer. And then all the, the variety um, of cancers and sometimes really striking improvement and benefit from these new therapies. Um, it's definitely enough to, to make you want to go back to work the next day. When we were taking a walk on your last uh, weekend trip out here a few weeks ago to see me, my wife, Charles, uh, our brother, Steve, and his wife, Sonia, and we took a walk uh, out on the Bolinas uh, Mesa to a bench um, not far from our house. And I asked you what you tried to do with your patients uh, when, when in the, you know, you're seeing 22 people a day, very short period of time. Um, and I, I asked, what was it that you tried to do? And my memory is that you said to me, I try to be sure that they, they went to a lot of trouble to get here today. And I try to be sure that it was worth their while. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think um, a lot of uh, care is nuts and bolts and, you know, real specifics and may not be all about the cancer care. There are a million other things going on. Um, as I mentioned, they have a lot of other illnesses and, um, you know, part of uh, what you want to do is just keep your stuff together and, and not drop the ball on the many different things that are going on with them in terms of their health, but also other things that might be happening as well. So I think most people arrive at a visit um, with a number of things that they can benefit from, whether it's information in general about what's going on with their health um, or specific things that need to get addressed and fixed. There's al almost always something. Uh, and I think um, the cancer doctor needs to have a pretty broad view of what's within their the range of care they should be providing. Maybe we that's the last question. Um, yeah, we get pretty uh, close to being primary care providers. Yeah. A, a late question. Um, I know enough about you to know that um, even though you haven't talked about it, that what I believe you bring to every patient, indeed almost every person you meet, is um, just a kindness, and I would go so far as to say a compassion um, that is palpable. And I just have been reading um, studies we have on our website about the power of compassion in the patient-physician interaction, how much difference simple compassion can make. And I'm curious, I would say that a lot of people at Boston Medical Center treating the low-income community have to be driven by something other than finding the highest salary they could find, um, that there must be a pretty strong I'm imagining uh, ethic of service and ethic of really wanting to make a difference for low-income people. So two questions. One is, to what degree, three questions, to what degree do you, are you aware of that impact for yourself? To what degree do you talk about it with your residents and the other staff? And then the third question is, to what degree is that the ethos of the hospital as a whole? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think when you're going through your uh, day-to-day -day routine, you've got, am I being compassionate enough? Uh, you know, uh, I think it's, uh, hopefully we're compassionate. I think we're not always compassionate enough. Um, you know, I think uh, there's all, you know, you can have been doing this for a long time and and still make all sorts of mistakes at all levels and, and not bring your best self to every interaction. So uh, I, I do think that as an institution, and, and it is something we talk about with each other, that um, we're pretty proud of, you know, uh, of where we work. Uh, and uh, if anything, I feel fortunate to, you know, to treat this group of patients. It's such an interesting and varied group of people. And your assumptions about people, you know, talk about 
microbioses and all those sort of things that um, are, are being talked about so much right now in terms of medical care. Yeah, we all have so many preconceptions um, about people when we walk in the room, when we look at them and they look a particular way and, and we think we know them, but we often really don't, you know, really don't know that person. Uh, and I think that's actually to be, to have a job where you interact just regularly again and again and again in hopefully a caring way with uh, people that are different from you and in many ways, you know, often wiser and more experienced about the world than you are um, from their incredible life journey. Uh, you know, that's that's pretty, uh, pretty damn cool to, um, to benefit from those interactions. Um, I get a lot out of, a lot of juice out of just, um, interacting with such a range of people every day. It's, you know, uh, not just the particulars of their ethnicity or whatever country they came from, but just who each of these people are. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, most people who work at Boston Medical Center are aware of what a special place it is. Adam, thank you for doing this conversation with me. It's been a, a great joy. And um, I'm so grateful that you are my brother. I'm so grateful that you and our brother Steve and I have had a close, loving relationship all our lives, and that we were raised by Max and Edna, who um, cared about all three of us. And um, you talked about being born with a silver spoon. I think that a large part of that silver spoon was just being born into a, a caring family. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the fact we were born into a caring family, and we were given great educations and um and thank god each of us tried to find a way to be of service yeah know? yeah so in our each in our own ways yeah well right back at you michael yeah. um thank you for uh asking me to do this it's it's really been wonderful to chat with you about all this You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Adam Lerner, MD, and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.